All right. Uh, why don't you grab your Bibles and uh, turn with me, actually not to Isaiah, uh, but to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. So uh, we are a community of Jesus, and um, we call Jesus by his full name. I don't know how often you do it, Jesus Christ. And I think many of us are tempted, or at least we don't even think about it, we may think that Christ is Jesus, like Jesus' last name, yeah. born to Mary Christ and Joseph Christ. <laughs> so that's just kind of how we think of it, because that's how names work in our language. But Christ is actually not Jesus' last name. It was a title. It was a title that he, during his uh, three-year ministry, hesitantly uh, said about himself in public because it was a very charged political religious title. But it was the title that came to be attached to him uh, by, uh, during the last part of his career and then by all of his early followers. And uh, Christ, it's a Greek word uh, that comes from a Hebrew word for Messiah that means an anointed one or Mashiach. And uh, ascent, it's a term uh, that actually uh, doesn't appear in the book of Isaiah. Uh, it appears a few times in the Old Testament, but this come, becomes the predominant way that Jesus is referred to and how he's linked to the Old Testament. And the book of Isaiah played a huge, huge role, as we're going to see, in the way Jesus talked about himself and understood himself, but also in the way the early Christians talked about Jesus and understood Jesus. And so really, here's why we're doing this. Isaiah's cool and it's in the Bible, sure. But really, uh, as, as we're going to see, what we're doing here is we're trying to understand uh, the, the mindset, the mission, and the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. And he did that in and with the book of Isaiah. And so really, that's my ultimate goal, is that our devotion and our allegiance to Jesus become stronger and more in-depth because of our time in the book of Isaiah. So Mark chapter 1, here's just, a, I'm going to point out a couple of examples of the way Isaiah was important for Jesus and the early Christians. So Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, Messiah, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths from him. It's a long quotation from Isaiah what? You may see it in your footnotes there, or just know. Isaiah what? Isaiah chapter 40. Now just stop for a second here. So if you were like writing a screenplay for the book of Mark or whatever, you're making it into a novel or so on, uh, is this a... Is this a very good way to begin a story that you're hoping to just reach everybody, get everybody on the same page instantly, Let's, we all know what's going on here, boom, here we go, out of the gates. Is this, is this a, a reader accessible beginning to a story? No, because you're one sentence into it and then you just say, oh, you know, Isaiah. That's why I'm telling this story. And we're like, what, Isaiah? Yeah, okay, Isaiah 40, I guess, okay, can I go look that up? So all I'm saying here is the story of Jesus begins by just assuming that you know all about Isaiah. That's how the Gospel of Mark starts. So I'm going to tell you the story of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And uh, sorry, I could tell a big long introduction. Let me just quote Isaiah and then we'll all be on the same page and we'll get going here. So he just assumes 
just, that you understand Isaiah 40 and that you can use it to understand why Jesus was coming and, and that kind of thing. Isaiah played a key role in how the early Christians, how Mark shaped the gospel to tell you the story of Jesus. To understand Isaiah 40 is to understand Jesus. Does that make, does that make sense? It's just kind of assumed. So this is kind of a funny thing. It's a challenge, uh, and it's, I think it's a welcome challenge when somebody comes a new, becomes a new Christian or becomes a new believer, and they want to learn about Jesus, and we say, well, go read the Gospels. Mark's actually, it's the shortest, briefest, I call it the comic book gospel, because Jesus says the least, has the least amount of his teachings in the Gospel of Mark, and it's action-packed. And so, go read the Gospel of Mark. And then, like, a brand new Christian is just like, and what? <laughs> like, over the first sentences. So, and that's okay, it starts the conversation here. What Mark is doing, he's intentionally saying, the story of Jesus doesn't just drop out of thin air, brand new. It's a continuation of a story that's long been working itself out. It's this, the story of the, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, go, go forward with me again, just a couple pages uh, to Mark, Mark chapter 4. <clears throat> and just, uh, just look at the heading of Mark chapter 4. What is Jesus doing in Mark chapter 4? He's telling parables. So this is uh, the famous collection of, one of the collections of Jesus' parables of the sower sowing the seed and so on of the, the mustard seed. Uh, so Jesus is teaching the parables uh, by, by the lake. He tells the parable of the four soils. And in verse 9, Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And this is Jesus' little code phrase. He says it from time to time. When he says something that has multiple layers of meaning. This is often when he uses this phrase. So you just heard me, some people are going to go away, I heard Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God, and he's talking about like agriculture and soil types, and so, you know, because it's so weird. Right? And so he says, if you have ears, listen. Because there's actually a, a very deep spiritual meaning to the story that he just told. And where did Jesus get this phrase of having ears to hear? Because some people won't have ears to hear, but some people will. Where did Jesus get this idea? Verse 10. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. And he told them, he said, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, that is, uh, those who have rejected him already in chapter 3. It helps to read Mark 3 before you read Mark 4. General rule of thumb. So read the chapter before whatever chapter it is that you're reading. Just a good, good lesson for the mindset. So to those on the outside, i.e. the people in chapter 3, everything is said in parables, so that, quote, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. What's he quoting here? Isaiah chapter... So whatever hap is happening in Isaiah, Jesus understands himself as carrying out his vocation as the Messiah as a complete continuation of Isaiah's mission to the people of Israel. So if I want to understand Jesus' mission to Israel, I better have a, a grasp of what Isaiah was doing in his mission to Israel. Turn forward with me to uh, the Gospel of Luke. We'll just look at one more example. Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Uh, and we're going to hop, hop 
in uh, at verse 16. Uh, chapter 4, verse 16. So Jesus, he goes to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, his hometown. And he went there on uh, the Sabbath. And uh, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He's a good Jew, goes to the synagogue. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet, lo and behold, the prophet of Isaiah, was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. End quote. And what's he... What's he just quoted here? From where? Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Such a great scene. And he said to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So once again, this is in Luke. This is Jesus' first speech. This is kind of like, it's his, uh, um, this is, coming of age, something, a party or something in the Gospel of Luke. This is where he comes onto the scene as a man, and he's recognized his vocation and his commission, and he explains his whole deal by just citing Isaiah chapter 61. And we're all like, where is Isaiah again, you know? And he's like, no, no, actually, to get me, you need to, to get Isaiah. And what's happening in, in the chapters of Isaiah in the 60s, chapter 61. So time and again, Isaiah was one of Jesus' favorite books in the Hebrew Bible. He quoted it and appealed to it time and time and time again to explain who he was and to explain what he was doing. So all of this is just kind of in, uh, I'm trying to make the persuasive case that we should care about the book of Isaiah. So am, I, am I being at all persuasive? <laughs> all right, good, good. Um, and even if I'm not, you came, and now you're trapped here. So, <laughs> um, so whatever, whatever it means to, to understand Jesus, it has to involve understanding what's happening in the book of Isaiah. So that's, that's the heart. And so there's a lot we could do with the book of Isaiah, but my goal is to, uh, it's an incredibly big, how, how many chapters in the book of Isaiah? 66. 66, which sounds really intimidating. It's actually only about like a chapter every page and a half whatever. You can actually sit down and read the thing in about four, four hours straight. Not sure how I know that, but <laughs> you can just do it. It's actually not that long, uh, but it's incredibly complex. And uh, when you sit down to read it, some people, it's, I don't know, I, uh, I'm going to use a lot of artist art analogies, because uh, reading Isaiah is much like looking at a lot of modern abstract art or something, because you're just like, I have no idea where I'm at and what I'm looking at right now. So that's kind of what it's like to, to read the book of Isaiah. And so my goal is to give us kind of a cosmic map, and we're going to land and just read a lot of passages together and work through them. But my ultimate goal is that uh, we walk away from our time uh, with a greater understanding and greater devotion and allegiance to, to Jesus. Because uh, it's clearly what he thought should happen when you read the book of Isaiah, that you understand him more and his call and what he's, what he's all about. Sound good? Awesome. So here's what we're going to do in this, uh, in this first session here. Um, we're actually uh, not even going to crack the book of Isaiah this morning. <laughs> uh, because to understand, to understand Jesus, you need to understand Isaiah. To understand Isaiah, you need to have a basic framework for what's happening in the storyline of, of the Old Testament. And so uh, this may be a bit 101 for some of you, 
Uh, I'm pretty sure there'll be some new stuff in it for all of us. But I want to highlight everything that Isaiah just assumes that you know before you even start the first sentence of Isaiah, of Isaiah chapter 1. Sound good? Okay, so you have your, on your handouts here, you have uh, a couple things. I've given you two handouts. One is just called uh, the book of Isaiah. And essentially, I'm going to give you a handout each week. And uh, what you have is an intro to Isaiah on the first page. And then you have three pages on Isaiah chapters 1 through 12. And uh, we may, in theory, cover all that today. Probably not, just so you don't get your hopes up. <clears throat> and then you have a, a historical timeline here. So let me, I'm just going to do something really big picture here. I have, a, I have the historical timeline. Let's just kind of focus here and make sure we're all on, this, on the same page. If I, if I walk up here, can I do this? Um, that, can I do that instead? All right, it's going to be much more effective. Okay. So uh, here's uh, here's kind of here's everything historically in terms of uh, the storyline of uh, of the Old Testament. So kind of key people are up here in this upper section here. All of like kind of the Sunday school names, or if you didn't go to Sunday school, whatever. These are just key Bible figures. Uh, these the bold here is just kind of key events. If you get this basic framework of the storyline down in your head, you've got it. You've got the basic skeleton of the whole Old Testament. And then what's underneath the line here is the books of the Old Testament that tell that part of the story, essentially. So I, I don't know. I'm, a, I'm kind of a visual and global thinker. I just need to get the whole thing before I can dive down into particulars. And so uh, you can see, where does Isaiah occur in the storyline here? I put a little box around his name. Kind of like, where's Waldo? Where's Isaiah? Yeah, so we have the prophets here, and here's Isaiah, right here. So you can just, even by putting this together right here, there's a whole lot of the storyline that precedes Isaiah uh, that you're just supposed to know as you, as you come into it. So uh, essentially, kind of the basic storyline, here we go, like the Old Testament in 45 seconds. God makes a really good world. Humanity screws everything up. God uh, calls one family, the family of Abraham, and through this family, somehow, he's going to restore blessing to all nations, the blessing that humanity lost when they rebelled uh, in the beginning. And so it's not specified how, but there you go. So this family itself ends up being full of broken, screwed up people, just like the rest of the human race. And so they land themselves in slavery in Egypt. And by sheer grace, God redeems them. They are saved, and then they get behaved as it were. <laughs> Saved and behaved. Sorry, that's bad. <laughs> Who knows where that quote came from? Yeah, that's a Paul Anderson quote. Skate to it. Anyway, so, saved and behaved. So that's exactly what's happening here. They're saved, and then they brought them out to Sinai. God enters into a covenant relationship with them, and those are all your favorite books of the Bible to read, right? Here. <laughs> that covenant relationship, right? It's all of the 613 laws in the Pentateuch, what these first five books are called. Uh, that set out the terms of the relationship. And uh, they're to follow all these rules as they go into the promised land. They go into the promised land, and uh, how do things go for them there? How does the game go? They get on the playing field, and do they follow the rules of the relationship? No, they fail miserably. They are constantly turning away after other gods. And so pretty much this, they get into the promised land. They have no king for a while, and uh, it's horrible. They're just 
completely uh, broken, screwed up people. They eventually uh, get some kings ruling over them to bring order and justice, people like David and Solomon. Uh, but David and Solomon themselves are really flawed figures. And so God makes a promise to David specifically that there will be a king who comes who will have none of the flaws of the leaders of Israel and he will fulfill the promise originally made to Abraham to bring blessing to all nations. And so you're just reading through all the kings, it's a painful, painfully long storyline, and you're like, is this a guy? Is this going to be, the, is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? No, he has a thousand wives. Is this the Messiah? No, like he steals people's land and murders them. No, right? Do you read through that? It's taking longer than 45 seconds. So essentially what happens is by the end of the book of Kings, uh, they, the people of Israel for this whole time just consistently abandoned the covenant relationships that are here, and so God gives them the boot out of the land. He gives them the boot, uh, this is what this represents, they, oh yeah, not to mention that they're just uh, religiously and spiritually corrupted, they're also politically corrupted because they have a civil war, and Israel splits into two, two different kingdoms, North Israel, South Israel, and so eventually God gives Israel uh, the hammer, brings the hammer. And in 722, um, the big bad empire of Assyria takes out Israel. About 150 years later, the kingdom of Babylon takes out Judah and takes them all the way into exile. After the exile, after 70 years, a, a group, not everybody, but a group of uh, uh, Israelites come back to the land and try and reset up their life there, hopefully to create a place where all the promises of the Messiah will come true, and uh, they don't. And then the Old Testament ends. <laughs> and you're like, what? So, so here's the whole thing, and this is why Mark begins his gospel the way it does. We have incredibly high hopes when it comes to this promise made to Abraham, and this promise made to David about blessing to all nations, and a Messiah coming who's going to bring righteousness and justice and peace to the world, and that promise is never realized. And uh, the, the Old Testament just ends completely uh, as an open-ended storyline. No closure, no resolution whatsoever. And so what all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in their own unique ways, they begin the story of Jesus as the continuation of this storyline. And they just assume you have this in your head and in your heart <laughs> so that you can understand who Jesus is and what he came to do and why he says the things that he says. So that's a big overview. Is that helpful? Does that make sense? So what I want to do uh, in this kind of morning session is camp out just in three key moments in this storyline. And without taking time to do this, I'm going to have to always be going back to these passages when we're in Isaiah. So I just thought, let's just go to these passages first, and then I can just say, remember Genesis 12? Remember 2 Samuel 7? And we'll all go, oh yeah, exactly. And then we'll all be on the same on the same page. So uh, let's, uh, let's hit up Genesis chapter 12. You can see on your Isaiah handout, I'm calling this key, key background to Isaiah, the covenant, the covenant story. <clears throat> and essentially, the story of the covenant in the Bible is uh, the story of how God is working out his mission to rescue and bring, bring blessing to all uh, just rebellious humanity, whatever. And he does it by 
singling out certain people or families and entering into, into a relationship with them. And so here's, uh, this is the book of, can, can we all see if I start drawing up here? Okay, all right. So here's key, uh, key passage in Genesis. How's that marker? Can you see with that marker? Is it faint? What's that? You got a better one? Uh, oh, that's maybe wider. Let me try this. How's that? Is that better? I have a fat black one up in my office, but we'll get it at, at uh, the break or something like that. So here's, uh, here's the book of Genesis uh, from 30,000 feet. Chapters 1 through 11, 12 through 50. And uh, the key, key moment here is a passage we're going to land in. is right at the bridge between these two. It's uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So God makes a good world, hands the real estate over to humanity, and we ruin everything. So there you go. <laughs> um, so what is God going to do about it? What God is going to do is uh, have a conversation with this random, random guy. Genesis chapter 12. Why don't you go there with me if you didn't already. So Genesis chapter 1 through 11, I think of, it's like wide zoom lens. It's a story of nations and people groups moving and, and, and murder and fratricide and brothers killing each other. It's just these horrible stories of broken, broken uh, sinful people. And what is God's response? What's he going to do to rescue a world uh, that's just spiraling into its own depravity? And in chapter 12 uh, is, is God's answer here. The Lord uh, said to Abram, whose name will later be changed to Abraham, uh, leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples, or some of your translations might have all the families of the earth, will be blessed through you. Or some of your translations might be have blessed in you. So let's just stop, make some observations here. Uh, what's, what's the key theme, key word here? So yeah, shoot for the one that's repeated like five times. <laughs> so that's pretty obvious. So blessing, blessing. So God wants to bring blessing to uh, this guy and to his family. Why? Just stare down here. He wants to bring blessing. Why? What's the purpose? Because he likes guys named Abram? Abraham's handsome or something? So I will bless you. You will be a blessing. But so, okay, great. But what's the cash out here? Like, what's the big overall point? So it's that last line there, right there. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And just pause, pause real quick here. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. But keep your thumb in chapter 12, but turn to Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> chapter 1, uh, verse 27. 
So God created man, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, him. Male and female, he created them. And what does God do for all humanity? He blesses them, right? So the whole relationship of God and humanity begins with one of God wanting to bestow blessing on all humanity. And uh, obviously the humans uh, rebel and so on. And so instead of uh, calling down blessing, they end up calling down curses upon themselves in Genesis chapter 3. So we have this key word blessing from the very first chapter of the story of the Bible in our minds. And then the humans forfeit that blessing. And so the big question looming is how is God going to restore blessing and, and a restored relationship with all humanity? And now it's going to be through the agency of just one person and uh, of, one, of one family. So this is really key to the storyline of the whole Bible here. If you don't get Genesis 12, nothing in the Bible will make sense to you. God's using one family through whom he's going to bring blessing and salvation to everybody. That's the key idea. Does that make sense? So again, so it's why is the majority of the Bible about the people of Israel? This is because of Genesis chapter 12. Why is Jesus Jewish? Because of Genesis chapter 12. It's through this family that he's going to work out his blessing and salvation to all nations. There's a strange story about Jesus when a non-Jewish woman approaches him and uh, asking him to do a, a wonder of, of healing. And what is Jesus' response? He's like, no, I, it's not time yet. It's not time. I, he, he calls her what we tend to think of as a pretty... Uh, derogatory reference. He calls her, it's not good to throw the crumbs to dogs, he says. And then she's like, well, even the dog should get crumbs from the table. And he's like, oh yeah, good point. And then he does the miracle. <laughs> so, but, uh, but then after that, in the Gospel of Matthew and so on, he says, my mission, go only to the lost sheep of Israel right now, Jesus says. My mission is to the people of Israel, but not just because he likes the people of Israel more than anybody else. Because by doing whatever Jesus needs to do with Israel, that's how he's going to fulfill the plan to bring blessing to all nations. So this is really key. Like, is Israel God's favorite people? Well, actually, if you read Genesis 12, no. Humanity is God's favorite people. And he's going to work out his favor and blessing for all humanity by working with one particular family. Does that make sense? So I, the way I kind of uh, think about it, then Genesis 12 is really the hinge piece of the storyline of, of the whole Bible. If, um, if the whole Bible is about uh, God and all humanity in his world, at Genesis 12, the storyline creates a little subplot. And now the whole subplot is going to be whatever he does with humanity is going to be resolved with his story of what he's doing with the people of Israel. So this is key for understanding Isaiah. And we're going to write in Isaiah chapter 2. He just assumes that you get this whole idea. Because he's going to talk about how God is going to judge and restore the people of Israel. So that all nations can come and learn from God's justice and his teaching. And that there can be an era of peace and shalom for all, for all nations. And uh, so Isaiah just assumes you get, you get Genesis chapter 12. So this is, this is really... This is key. After Jesus says to his disciples, don't go to the Gentiles right now, just go to Israel. It's in Matthew uh, chapter 12. The very last words of the Gospel of Matthew after he's crucified and raised from the dead were his last words in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, now's the time. 
go to all nations and make disciples, right? Teaching them to obey and, and everything. Like, now's the time. So Jesus had to do something before blessing could be restored to all nations. So anyway, that's the key idea. Thoughts or questions about Genesis 12? This is key to kind of the architecture of the whole, of the whole Bible. All right. Well, either I'm really boring or I just answered all your questions <laughs> just by talking a lot. So, okay. All right. Uh, turn forward with me. Next key moment in the storyline uh, to Exodus chapter 19. <clears throat> so, uh, God calls the family of Abraham right here through them, but going to bring blessings to all nations. And uh, pretty much the whole rest of the book of Genesis is about the three, uh, three generations, about Abraham, and then the, that promise gets passed on to his son, his promised son, Isaac, uh, passed on to his promised son, Jacob, uh, and then so on. And pretty much the whole book of Genesis, I think of, it's kind of like a comedy of errors, basically, because uh, these three guys are so screwed up or selfish or whatever. Uh, that they are constantly putting the promises of God into jeopardy and thre threatening them just by their stupid decisions. So, like, Ab Abram get, tries to give away his wife, you know, and then his son does the same thing, you know. It's just ridiculous. But God consistently saves uh, his promises and his faithfulness from uh, the ridiculous brokenness of uh, his people. At the end of the book of Genesis, uh, uh, the people land themselves down in Egypt and uh, where they become enslaved. And so the whole story of the Exodus, really think about this. In the Exodus, then, when the, the people are in slavery, we should be biting our fingernails. We should be going, what? I thought God was going to bless all nations through these people, and now they're in slavery. Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't make any sense at all. Is God faithful to his promises? And so he raises up a deliverer, and he brings them out of Egypt, and he's going to enter into that covenant relationship with them at Mount Sinai. And Exodus chapter 19 is the key key moment in that story. And we're going to see the same, uh, the same type of idea of Genesis 12, but here in Exodus 19. So, in, uh, in the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert at the front of the mountain. So they've kind of been wandering out of Egypt through the wilderness and then they eventually camp out at this mountain. How, uh, how long do they stay at Mount Sinai? A long time. Long time. So it's a, a, a calendar year, one year, they finally leave in Numbers chapter 10. So they camp out for the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and the first 10 chapters of Numbers. They're just sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai. And here's, uh, here's how the, the scene begins here at Mount Sinai, verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So let's pause right there. So what's this metaphor? It's a beautiful metaphor right here of eagles, eagles' wings. 
So the whole story of the Exodus is summarized right here in this metaphor. It's like an eagle so huge came and just plopped you on his back and, uh, and, and uh, flew away and rescued you out of Egypt. I've often wondered if uh, this was the inspiration for the eagles uh, rescuing Frodo and Sam. Because uh, there's so much, I mean, the Lord of the Rings is thick with biblical imagery. I've always wondered if, if that scene was inspired by Exodus 19.4. Anyhow, I uh, brought you out of, uh, carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak uh, to the Israelites. Now there's two, two key things going, going on here. Uh, one is, in verse 5, uh, their status as being singled out among the nations... To bring, and we, and we should have Genesis 12 in our minds here. Israel's role and status and how, what their role is in God's plan here. How that's going to work out. That's, that's contingent here. And do you see, what's the, what's the most important word in verse 5 here as you first reading, start reading it? Obey. Well, obey, but then even before that, if you obey. So this whole thing's going to work out if Israel obeys. If Israel obeys then this is going to be great. Things are going to be flowery. <laughs> and uh, he, their role to the nations is going to be worked out here, as it says. But then if built into this condition is an if, what if they don't? What if they don't obey? Well, you have to keep reading <laughs> to figure that out. But this, this covenant, did God say to Abraham, if you follow me, then I'll bless all nations through you? No, it was just straight up God just says, I'm going to do this. And the whole rest of the book of Genesis is Abraham just being stupid and almost ruining it. And God, every time, rescues. Rescues his covenant promises. But this relationship has a bit of a different setup here. This is with the whole nation of Israel. He wants Israel to participate through obedience in the carrying out of the mission. He invites them. So obedience and holiness is now connected to the mission of being God's people in the world. And what's, again, what's the cash out here? He invites them, he wants them to obey and keep the covenant. And the key, uh, the key thing here is in verse 6. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and, uh, and a, holy, a holy nation. Now just a couple things here, that, and we'll just kind of throw this up here to, to make it uh, clear. Can, can y'all see that there? Okay, all right. So notice, uh, notice what he says right here. Does he say a kingdom with priests? No, so, which is interesting because that's what Israel becomes, isn't it? They become a kingdom with priests. But was that the original vision? Yeah, the original vision was that the nation as a whole and as individuals play a priestly, a priestly role. So just kind of play, play this out with me and, and think about this. What is the job of a, of a priest? What does a priest do? Okay. 
There you go. So, goes before the Lord on behalf of others and mediates, was another, mediates between, we'll say, God and, uh, and people, right? So, what does God say about Israel here? This is pretty, this is key. He says, you'll be a, a nation of priests, a whole kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests, and uh, who are they priests for? That's pretty obvious in the context. Priests of what God? Of Yahweh, the God of, uh, that called Abraham. Now, does Exodus 19 spell out who is on the other side of the equation there? Does it say here? It doesn't say here. It doesn't say here. How are you supposed to know who the nation of Israel is mediating, Yahweh and whom? Well, lo and behold, we just read Genesis chapter 12. <laughs> so you're just supposed to know Genesis chapter 12. Oh, yeah, okay, oh, yeah. God called this people to be the ones to mediate what God is doing to whom? What did Genesis 12 say? So, it's all nations. <clears throat> so again, this is Exodus 19, uh, picking up the theology or the ideas of Genesis 12, but now with a new twist, that God is going to fulfill his promises somehow. Right? Unconditionally. But there's a new step in when God invites a people to play a role in that. That the working out of that plan, their obedience or disobedience plays a role. And so if they disobey, uh, God in some way has set that up to work within his plan. To whether he allows it or he's going to allow it, their disobedience to delay his plan whether their obedience is going to speed forward his plan. It's not, none of that's stated here, really clearly. And this is all, all of this is worked out in the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah's big question is, he's called to uh, call the people of Israel back to the covenant and to obey, and they don't. And so salvation gets delayed. And continually calling the people back, they don't. Salvate the Messiah's coming is delayed again and again and again. And so this is key part of what's happening here in, uh, in Isaiah. Their obedience plays a, a key role in bringing blessing to, to all nations. So, in many ways, this uh, Exodus 19 also sets up the whole context of what uh, the prophets are all about. So again, looking at the historical timeline. So, uh, a, a phrase that I use to describe the prophets then are uh, the people of Israel that come into the land and uh, they're terribly disobedient and uh, uh, forsaking Yahweh, following other gods. And so the prophets come along at different points in the history of Israel. And I, I think of the prophets as uh, covenant watchdogs. That's what, what I call them. So they are, they're on the prowl for whether Israel is obeying the terms of the covenant, according like what Exodus 19 said. So they're going to speak on behalf of Yahweh and challenge the people to obey they're going to accuse them of disobedience and infidelity. This is the role of the prophets. Which is funny because I, in English, when we hear the word prophet, what kinds of things start coming to your mind? Prophecy. Prophet. Yeah, tell it, like fortune telling. Right? Predicting the future, right? And so at its base, that is not the core idea of prophecy in the Bible at all. The prophets sometimes relate uh, what they're saying to the future, sometimes, but actually the majority of what is actually in the books of the prophets is not uh, prediction. 
it's accusation. <laughs> uh, it's accusation. And the whole thing about what they're saying is, if you are unfaithful in the present, uh, then God's not going to bring about the blessings of the covenant. He's going to bring you judgment instead. And so, if he's going to judge, he can't deny himself and his promises, though. After the judgment, he will fulfill his promises one day. That's where the future element comes in. So Isaiah, all of this is key to Isaiah. Because he's going to be pointing out uh, how they've uh, disobeyed and failed uh, the covenant made at Sinai. And it just keeps uh, this tension before us here. God wants to bring blessing to all nations through Israel. How is he going to do it if they're so disobedient? And this is a, an issue Isaiah is going to, going to wrestle with. So Exodus 19 is key, key passage for understanding the book of Isaiah. Genesis 12, Exodus 19. How are you guys doing? Tracking? Okay. Um, should we land, land in one more passage for background? Then we'll, we'll, we'll keep, jump into Isaiah. Okay. What's the next passage I have there? Uh, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, I got it. All right. 2 Samuel chapter 7. <clears throat> so this is now uh, the people of Israel. They're in uh, the land. They've been in the land. And uh, David is the second uh, king over all of the tribes. They were kind of like a loosely organized federation of tribes in the land. And that didn't, just didn't really work that well for them. They got into a couple civil wars and lots of people died and so on. And so uh, they, uh, they elect a king, the first king of Israel. Saul. Saul. Good guy and bad guy. Yeah, he's deeply flawed. Deeply flawed character. He's, he's, he, the story of Saul is, I think, a case study the case study in the Bible, an in-depth case study of self-deception. It's a very, very powerful story of how you can actually come to believe as truth uh, lies that you tell yourself. It's a very powerful story. So Saul's taken out and uh, David, uh, David is selected as the king. So we're jumping in well into David's reign here. He's been king for a little while, chapter 7. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said, David said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am. I'm living in a nice palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Or another name for this tent? Tabernacle. Tabernacle, yeah. So described in exhausting detail in uh, the book of Exodus. Holy cow. Has anyone ever tried to do that? It's Pretty, pretty long. It's like reading an architectural plan in the book of Exodus. All right. So uh, here I, I'm living in a really nice house. And, you know, it's a nice tent that the people made for him. But, you know, it's a tent, you know. So Nathan replied to the king, well, whatever you have in mind, why don't you go ahead and do that? The Lord is with you. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you going to build me a house to dwell in? So what is, just stop right here. The word house, there's a word play on the word house here in this whole chapter. It's very clever. Um, so the word house, what does the word house mean here? A house for God. It's a temple, right? So not like, I don't know, 
a three-bedroom ranch style <laughs> or whatever. So no, no. So uh, like a temple. So pillars, sacrificial altars, priests, all this kind of stuff. Are you going to build me a temple to dwell in? I haven't dwelt in a, a permanent structure, a temple, from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this very day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. And wherever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So, how did, what is God's response to David's wish, essentially, here? He's getting the shutdown, basically. Right? He's getting shut down. Um, as you're going to find out, it's because David, as a man of war, has immense amounts of blood on his hands. Uh, for good and ill, right? Because he was a very compromised person himself. So it's his son Solomon who will be the one to build him a temple. But David uh, is disqualified for different, different reasons. Okay, uh, verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, here's what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be a ruler over my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great. So ring any bells. Who else had a promise of having their name made great? Abram. So all of a sudden, ding, 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 we have Genesis 12 ringing in our ears here. Oh, I remember the covenant with Abram. So, so this is what the biblical authors do. Often through repeating key words, they're just signaling. You're just supposed to think of these other biblical passages here. It's kind of like, I don't really watch The Simpsons anymore. Um, but what I always liked about The Simpsons was their subtle kind of allusions to like, you know, culture and movies and music. And they would put dorky music stars in the storyline. You know what I'm saying? So that's kind of how the Bible works too, like The Simpsons. There'll be these little allusions to well-known key biblical passages. And you're just supposed to, I'll make your name great. Oh, that's... Clever one. It's a good one. Good one. Genesis 12, right? That's how, our, that's how your mind should begin to work. Because that's how the biblical authors want to train your mind as you, read, as you read the Bible. I'll make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. And have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. And I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Okay, here we get, get even more interesting. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Do you see what's happening here? So David said, I want to build a house for God. And their house means temple. And God says, no, nope, sorry, no, nope, it's not really how it's going to work. Actually, I'm going to make your name great and build a house for you. What does that mean? What does house mean in that sentence? Yeah, not temple, like dynasty, like a royal line, descendants, right? Um, when you said dynasty, I thought of the, the 80s soap opera. <laughs> dynasty. I'd actually never have either. I just remember so commercials about it from being a kid or whatever. 
It was, I, I remember it from the era w when I was watching reruns of Three's Company. That's what I remember. <laughs> you guys remember Three's Company? Awesome. Okay, anyway. Uh, so, di dynasty. A line, a line. Royal line. When your days are over, when you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you or to come after you. And maybe some of your translations have something different than offspring. Anybody? Seed. Seed? And any others? Descendant. Descendant. Okay, got it. So the, the Hebrew word here is actually seed. Seed. And this is going to be a key, key word in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah had 2 Samuel 7 buried deep, deep in his heart. Um, so it pays to pay attention to what's going on here. So we're going to... Uh, the word seed... Uh, in Hebrew, it's uh, the word zera. Oh, no. Don't you hate that auto capitalization feature? You know, it's just like, what? So it's the word zera. So literally it means seed that you sow in the ground and grows like plants and stuff like that. Um, and in, in Hebrew, it becomes uh, a metaphor um, for the line of seed. So it essentially, humans making more humans is made analogous to seed going into the ground and then growing plants. And so children are called the seed. So offspring or descendants. So here's the tricky thing is that in our English translations, this one Hebrew word will often get translated in different ways because it actually can have multiple meanings depending on the context, right? It can mean agricultural seed, there's like a sprout or something, but it's one Hebrew word. Um, and this is going to be key in the book of Isaiah, because the book of Isaiah is all about the, the holy seed. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's going to be uh, an, a, a descendant, a royal descendant, right? Because we're talking about a royal line here, a house of David. Uh, a seed who will succeed you, he will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. What's the meaning of house there? Temple. Temple. So a descendant, royal descendant from the line of David, who will uh, build the temple. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Hmm. Okay, now before, okay, to stop and realize, pretend you're pre-Jesus here, right? So some of you are already thinking about Jesus, and that's great. You should be, but not yet. <laughs> okay, not yet. Don't jump ahead of the game. Um, so just think, think in terms of word, what David's thinking is, as he reads this, and how even as you, as a reader of the Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures, um, before the New Testament's ever around, what, how would you understand this promise here? So, yeah, so we're thinking, we're thinking Solomon here. I will be his father and he will be my son. So this is, this is tricky. This father, the father-son language. So we have a royal king. Uh, he's going to build a temple. Um, he's going to have, you know, a divinely established kingdom. Uh, and he's going to have this father-son relationship with God. <clears throat> so this... Uh, this is tricky here because we automatically start thinking in terms of 
Trinity, right? Because Jesus used exactly this language to start talking about his relationship to, to the Father, and he called himself the Son. Pre-Jesus, this language wasn't quite loaded with all of that meaning in 2 Samuel 7. Isaiah is going to load this language a little more, and then Jesus is going to light the fuse, as it were. <laughs> so, um, so it's the Father's Son. So the, the, the king, the Davidic king throughout the history of Israel, many kings are called by this name, the Son, the son of God. It's very common in the book of Psalms. The king is called the Son of God, and so on. But I think that they're like little s. Small s, uh, sons of God. They're appointed by God to, to be agents of his rule and so on. I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. Okay, now some of you are thinking, Jesus, 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 right? And then you get this line, you're like, huh? What? Jesus? How does this work out here? So, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So how long is forever? Yeah, <laughs> forever. So uh, now we're talking about an eternal, an eternal kingdom. So we're thinking, other than the whole thing about when he does wrong, He'll suffer for it. Everything else here begins to fit, and we're thinking Jesus here, right? So what, what's happening here? So you need to place this in historical context. You're about to read a story about the line of David, and how many of those royal descendants of David are going to like do a good job of leading the people and being faithful to God? Yeah, a few. A few. In the northern kingdom of Israel, zero. <laughs> In the southern kingdom of Judah, where David's descendants were, a handful were mostly faithful. <laughs> uh, but none of them were completely faithful. And so Solomon comes along, and he builds a temple, doesn't he? But then he totally ends up abandoning and forsaking God by the end. In which case, you go, wait, was he the fulfillment of the promise? No. No. But he did build a temple, and he did establish the people in the land, and so on. So... Somehow, Solomon was, a, was maybe a, a picture. What happened with him was a, a forward-pointing image, but he wasn't the real deal. And you read on through the story, and none of them are. So think about how the story sets you up then. Um, you get this premise in 2 Samuel 7 of a king, all this, the list that we just made here. So descendant of David, father-son relationship, you're going to build a temple, eternal kingdom, all this kind of thing. And you read through the story of Samuel and Kings, and did any, any of the descendants of David fulfill this promise? Not one. And then they go into exile. And then some return from exile, and they rebuild the temple, and did any of the descendants of David then fulfill the promises? Not a one. And then the story of the Old Testament ends. <laughs> right? So again, that's the tension here. It's completely unresolved. This promise to David is just left hanging. So there's lots of different ways you can, you can liken it, you know, if uh, you're Lord of the Rings fans. It's, you know, it's really, it's like the first, the Old Testament is the first two movies, or the first two books. <laughs> and that's it. It's just completely left hanging. All of these plot lines have begun in Genesis 12, Exodus 19, 2 Samuel 7, and it's all tied to God rescuing broken humanity. 
And all of it's just totally left hanging as you finish the last page of the Old Testament. So, I, and Isaiah uh, is going to pick up all of these themes. He's going to reshuffle them. He's going to pack them with new meaning and significance. Um, but these are the key strands of the storyline that Isaiah just assumes that you know before he builds uh, his, own, his own story uh, and his, uh, his own book and so on. So, uh, there you go. That's kind of the Old Testament 30,000 feet. How are you guys doing? You doing good? Tim, just yesterday yeah. when we were doing the overview of the Old Testament and staff, um, I, I don't know if you pointed out what I read upstairs with the bathroom, but the, the whole concept, the theme of seed, even beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Yeah, totally. Like, how does that connect to the Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't you worry. <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah, Genesis 3 is uh, really important. Um, but it'll be important once we get into Isaiah itself. I'll, I'll bring up that, that piece. Um, but these are the key, yeah, these are the key themes. Any other thoughts, thoughts or questions? And we'll take, we'll take like very quick, like two minutes to stand up, break, stretch, go get some more coffee, empty your bladders, and then we'll come, we'll come back. Any other thoughts or questions though? So, so, wow, I said break and everybody's like. <laughs> so any other thoughts or questions? What about when he talks about being the uh, in the story of, of Samuel and Kings, it's about the kings of Israel, yeah, getting the getting divine justice because they are unfaithful, mm-hmm. uh, and then it then it plays it plays itself out. So, so maybe one little detail here: um, the Book of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, it tells the same story of the events of Samuel and Kings. It, chronologically, it was written uh, back down here. That's why I say at the top here, this is about the dates of the events, not the time when the books were written. Most of the books of the Hebrew Bible, although they came into existence and started coming into shape here, the final shaping of the Hebrew Bible is uh, way, way down here. The books of Chronicles is written somewhere here, and when he retells the story of 2 Samuel 7, he's already watched all of the kings of Israel be disobedient and get, you know, uh, get the hammer. Um, and so when he retells the story, he leaves that line out. Because he's now sitting on the other side of exile, and he knows that this promise was never fulfilled in Israel's history. He sees it as solely a future promise here. So when you read 2 Samuel 7 in 1 Chronicles, which is 1 Chronicles 17, uh, he, he reshapes it to make sure that it's very clear that this is a future promise referring to the Messiah yeah, that was never fulfilled. So. So that may have gone over some of your heads. That's no big deal, but that, uh, that's a key piece. Okay, let's take a little couple minutes, stand up, bathroom break, and then we'll come, come back again.